and they were uh, the children were on the fifth the fifth floor and was a containment building in Delhi of a slum, and they were working as bonded slaves. The kids were aged between ten and twelve, and um, they were working sixteen, seventeen hour days. But the worst thing about the story was five floors below the sweatshop was a school. And this was the thing, this was the thing that really broke my heart. So every day they were working 16, 17 hour days. And for half of that day, listening to school children play and lessons and the cycle of life, the school bell, you know, the clanging bell they have in India. Yeah. Three-time Foreign Correspondent of the Year nominee, the UK equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize, a dozen major international prizes for reporting, including four Amnesty International Awards for Outstanding Human Rights Journalism, a Royal Television Society Award for Documentary Making, and a Martha Gellholm Prize nominee for War Reporting, Foreign Press Association of London Writer of the Year, and One World Journalist of the Year for Outstanding Foreign Reporting. These awards are testament to the talent and tenacity of Scottish-born journalist Dan McDougall. Dan was also voted one of the world's most influential people in the world of ethical trading by US-based Ethisphere Institute. He's also a visiting lecturer at Cambridge University on business and human rights and recently spoke at the United Nations in Geneva on the impact of corporate supply chains on the world's poorest. Not to mention, he's an ardent Glasgow Celtic fan and an all-round good guy. In this wide-ranging episode, we cover everything from the influence of his working-class upbringing in Glasgow, his early career in journalism, how serendipity changed his life during the 2005 tsunami, his curiosity and his ferocious desire to address child labour abuses in corporate supply chains, and his experiences as a war correspondent. I hope you enjoy this stimulating and uncompromising discussion with Dan McDougall. Welcome to the Impossible Network, Dan. Okay, thank you. And I believe you are in Barcelona. Yeah, we, we live in Barcelona now. We're, we're based here. It's a really great city, a very creative place and somewhere that we, I guess we kind of agonised over moving to. It was either going to be Los Angeles, Lisbon or Barcelona. And yeah, and so Barcelona won. I'm a huge football fan, of course. So to be here, you know, this is this is the home of football. Well, we could get into a conversation that would take us down a completely different football podcast, but maybe maybe we'll do that as a follow-up. Yeah, but another thanks, time. But thanks for being on the show. So um, we tend to start with your upbringing. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your family, your social environment, and how that set you on your path to becoming an award-winning journalist and laterally content creator. Well, I, I grew up in a housing estate uh, called Fox Bar, which sounds very kind of green and rural and pastoral, but it's not. It's the opposite. It's just rather downbeat place. But I was happy there. I, you know, I, I don't really struggle with this this kind of concept of identity. I think Andrew Hagen writes beautifully about identity, um, Scott Saucer, and how having a, a strong sense of identity is a useful thing for a writer. I think there's, there's a lot of a lot of writers would rather have kind of more of a messed up childhood, right? You know, they would more more adversity, and and maybe that will give them some kind of material to draw on. But for me, growing up in Paisley was it was it was my family was split down the middle, half Catholic, half Protestant, which is quite a quite a controversial mix. So, so I grew up in a, a, a very working class family. Uh, my father was a lorry driver. Can I jump in there, Dan? Because you said yeah. what I found interesting that you you came from a family of both Catholics and Protestants. It must require you to be somewhat empathetic to both sides of the family. Is that something you think may have actually contributed to your ability to be able to see both sides of an argument, to be able to talk to people wherever you go? 
yeah, I mean, look, I'd honestly like to say with my hand and my heart that, you know, when it, when it comes to the green and blue of, of Glasgow, that I, I can see both sides and I have empathy, but I, I no, it's the opposite. I'm a Celtic fan and, and was very drawn to the Catholic side of the family. I would be being dishonest if I said that the experience of growing up in a split family made me see both sides because there was only one side for me. <laughs> my mother's my mo- my mother's side, actually, uh, ironically, maybe maybe there's something in that. Maybe Oedipus could say something about that. But I, I think certainly growing up in a, a Scots Catholic Protestant family is quite controversial in some respects. When my parents got married, my mum was only 20, uh, 19, in fact. Uh, my dad was 19. They were both, they were just kids. They were teenagers, right? And down the aisle and one side of the family on one side of the hall, the other on the other, it's ticking every cliched box. But I, I had a very, very large extended family uh, in both sides. My, my father's from seven, my mother's from eight it might be the other way around brothers and sisters in terms of siblings and obviously they had quite a bad experience in terms of coming into the to the relationship because one catholic one protestant it's like romeo and juliet narrative in some respects and so as a consequence i think that what my parents did and i don't think that they did it consciously i think it just happened over time as they almost corralled themselves off from the extended family and the pressures that that brings and i and we became a very classic nuclear family in, in quite short order. So I was, as a consequence, brought up in this very protected and closeted world. You know, I, I would see my cousins and maybe every every month or something, but they, we weren't living on top of each other, which is very true for a lot of families in the West Coast of Scotland. And that's going to be something that I, I do think about increasingly, is that perhaps that was an advantage to me because I had this cocoon around me. So the first 11 years of my life, I was brought up as an only child, which my wife would probably say explains a lot. My sister is, you know, would say that I am an only child. She was born 11 years later. But I think that I certainly was very protected and very, very, my parents put a lot of focus on me, on my education, on my sport, on every aspect of my life. So I was, you know, I wasn't spoiled. We didn't have a lot of money, but I was very much loved. And every, every, every time I've gone for counselling, you know, for post-traumatic stress and other things, they, they, they really wanted to talk, drill down and talk to me about my parents looking for evidence of a messed up childhood. It's just not there. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't find anything. It's like, what, about your, what, what about your social environment? I mean, you say you were, had a cosseted upbringing being almost this uh, only child for 11 years. That couldn't have been the, the same when you're going through school in the West Coast of Scotland being an ardent uh, Celtic supporter. No, I mean, I, I think, look, you know, socially, my entire interaction with the world was through football. You know, I just like, I was obsessed. I mean, I just was obsessed, just played football. Like I played for three different teams at the same time through my whole childhood. You know, I eventually made it as a trialist and obviously a number of premier teams or Scottish premier teams and did pre-season with Hamilton Ackies and then was was found out. But, I, you know, I was, a, I was a very good amateur. But I think going back to this issue of my parents and working class roots, my mum and dad worked in Coatsy's Mills, which is a cotton mill in Paisley that used to employ like 20,000 people. It employed half the town. I guess like in America, you have Chrysler and, you know, GM Motors, you know, basically is the economic backbone of all these towns. And it's the same in Scotland. It used to be the same in Scotland. You know, in, in Paisley, we had the, the motor plant in Linwood that the Proclaimers sing about in uh, Letter from America. British Leyland. Lin, uh, Linwood no more. And, and also, obviously, coats. And so, so coats, ironically, distributed thread and, and wool all over the world. Uh, and my mum my my worked in the factory on the lines from a very young age, from 17 or so. She was a factory worker. Effectively, sweatshops, right? If you, when you really think about it, and that might explain some later aspects of my life. My dad was a lorry driver. 
And he became a shop steward when I was very young, when I was three or four, and was quite politicised. And I remember all the, you know, he'd sit in his lorry cab reading the Glasgow Herald. And anyone that's, that grows up in Glasgow knows that your average lorry driver is sitting reading the Daily Record or the Sun or a tabloid, and he was reading the broadsheets and very engaged in politics. And, and he was obviously bright from a young age, but his economic circumstances were fairly dire, as were my mother's. Um, and that's how they found each other. They lived, they lived across the road from each other in an, in an area called Craigalee, Fergusley Park, which at that time, and, and was until the 80s, was probably one of the most deprived areas of Europe. And in fact, the most deprived area of Europe is a place called Scampia in Naples, where I, I did a story, an investigation into uh, to Roma uh, travellers many years ago. That's a very dangerous place. Welcome to Scampia and the snipers on the roof. It's controlled by the Camorra. Well, that's maybe a little, maybe it's a little bit like what Fergus the Park was like. So I, I guess that from an upbringing perspective, I, I was from a very early age, a father who had enormous intellectual potential, but through circumstance found himself working as a lorry, lorry driver. But you said that he was quite political and he was a shop steward. Did he have a politicising effect on you? He's a, he's a kind of quiet man, my dad, you know, he's not, he's, he's got lots of opinions, political opinions. In fact, we disagree in quite a lot of things these days politically, but we still have the same core principles. But my grandfather uh, on the Catholic side, my mother's side, was very, very vocal on politics. And at this time, the backdrop of our lives, my childhood, was Margaret Thatcher. Right? She, she was the, she, for, she formed the spine of my entire political kind of existence. I mean, everything was negative about Whitehall politics against the establishment, against Scotland being marginalised, the closure of factories, heavy industries. I had family losing jobs. And by osmosis, this extreme political situation, this. This, I guess, malcontent across Scottish life seeped into my being. I didn't know at the time. I know it now, but I didn't know it at the time. And yeah, so I, I became very politicised from a very young age. Just looking back in the Thatcher years, and I know it still divides people depending on what side of the, the Thatcher argument you stand, but there clearly was a period in Britain where there was a, a complete lack of social justice. Do you get a sense that that's, that sense you have for righteousness and fighting for people that are trodden by either corporations or through ill-practice Ill supply chains, that that instinct you have for social justice and for resistance was born through that living through the Thatcher years? I think, I think the thing that annoyed me most about that period, I mean, I remember the teachers being on strike a lot and I remember being upset because football was cancelled. Right, that was like the end of my world, right? And we would we would end up teachers would just end up volunteering their own time. Parents would come in, the community would somehow keep the team going, but there was no overtime. The teachers working to rule or on strike, um, huge class sizes, and so you know there was definitely an impact in my my daily life as a child. And I and I guess that would have fed an anger and a distrust of probably authority in in, in some respects. I th I think that. Thatcher remains a demon to many Scots of my generation and before. I mean, don't forget, right, that, you know, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, went, almost went to number one in Scotland when Thatcher died. I mean, they wanted that song to, to reflect, not, they didn't want her to have a state funeral. And I think a lot of people are still hurting from that. And I could certainly, I could certainly go through every one of my highly educated, successful working class friends and they would all put her at the top of the list you know, in, in terms of hate figure. And I do realise that's an emotional argument because if I was to reflect on it with my education and, and my experience now, I would say that she was a very dogmatic character and she was certainly, she did, was no fan of Scotland, but, you know, a lot of the policies that she introduced were, were probably, I hate to say, I hate to use the word prescient, but they probably were quite prescient in some respects. 
But she, you know, I, I, I don't know anyone whose lives weren't touched by the Conservative Party in a negative way in the 80s. At that period, you were finishing school, entering university? Yeah, I mean, I was the first, mem- I was the first member of my family to go to university. So what, um, sparked, what sparked your interest in journalism? It's going to sound contrite, but I, as, a, as a youngster, I was obsessed with Tintin, the comic book, the French comic book by Hergé. I mean, I know Hergé was a Nazi, right? It's not really fashionable to like Tintin. <laughs> but for me, that, that life that he had, that experience was just... And ironically, Hergé was a recluse. He never went anywhere. So anyone that reads Tintin thinks that Hergé travelled the world. And he sat in a, an apartment in Brussels and just basically used research. And I had access to one thing that probably was a turning point for me. And it was the reference library in Paisley. And I'd get into the reference library and I would look at Encyclopedia Britannica's and I would look at maps and I would, and they had these boxes full of old coins and all sorts of weird stuff. And for me, it was like, a, I'd go on my own. And the way I think about it is actually, because I, I wasn't like an outlier or a geek or anything as a kid, right? I was like sporty and stuff. But why am I hanging about in a library looking at maps and, you know, old old kind of encyclopedias from the colonial days and stuff? And, and one thing that Paisley did have because of course was that they'd been bequeathed this most extraordinary public reference libraries, you know, like great museums because the Coates family were philanthropic and, and they'd gave, given all the books to the, the great unwashed to the proletariat. And then, you know, you go in and look at all these incredible library books. And that was probably a big influence on me. And I love it. I was an avid reader. But the journalism thing specifically comes from Tintin. Uh, and, I, and I felt maybe that chimed with this. He was always a crusading, campaigning human rights journalist, effectively. So that was specifically for the journalism aspect. And where do you think your curiosity came from to find yourself in reference libraries? Do you think it's just a, a trait you've been born with, a natural curiosity? I, I think so. I get, asked, I get asked quite a lot about this. I get asked about instinct normally, you know, where does that instinct come from? And yeah. maybe I can talk about that later. But yeah, I think I think that there is an actual curiosity. I mean, I, I, I loved... Um, I, I loved reading poetry from a very young age and still do, in fact, and I write poetry um, now and I have done for some time. And so I've always had this love of poetry, almost as a form of protest. And, and I was very, as a, as a young boy, I was guided by a teacher in my primary years who was obsessed with Robert Burns. And so in Scotland, Burns is part, you know this, Mark, is Scotland, yeah. uh, Burns is part of the curriculum, right? He's part of the bread and butter of education. And so I remember reading you know, the Seer Finger, you know, I'm, 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 I, you know I, I remember Tam Shanter, which was just a nightmare. Like, it was like, about, I don't know, I don't even know how long Tam Shanter is, but it, it's just, yeah. it seemed to me at the time like a bit, like a dissertation, you know? It was, yeah, it was like a curse for me when I was at school, trying to remember that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, re- I, I recently gave a, a, a Burns Night, I, I, I did the Immortal Memory, and, and Burns Night, um, for the listeners, is like you, you basically turn up and you, you get very drunk and eat haggis and celebrate the life of, of the great bard. And I did a lot of research into Burns' life, and I and I and I heard this. Burns was a massive influence in me because I, I realise now in retrospect that but he was actually like a human rights journalist. He was the kind of guy that would he would he would he would write a poem in praise of a family's meal. Just that you know he you know he was a terrible philanderer and a bit of a drunk and a you know he had lots of personal personal flaws but he was an incredible writer his poetry his music his his prose is timeless even to this day i mean i was researching the immortal memory i I found a passage about his relationship with maya angelou and so maya angelou had been sexually abused as a child and obviously grew up in, in effectively bonded slavery or family or extended family would be bonded slaves and she had the most horrendous childhood and the thing that 
echoed with her was Burns. She had a, there was a missionary, a Scottish teacher, and, and when she read My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose, it suddenly brought her alive, you know, brought words and just just somehow connected with her in, in, in a level that she, she couldn't explain, I don't think, throughout her life. Her, one of the questions she said is, why was this white Scottish guy that lived two, three hundred years ago, why why has he connected with me above anyone else? And I can, I, I, I can relate to that. Burns is not relevant to her life. And, in, 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 in lots of different ways but once you start digging into the lyrics and or the stanzas you start to understand he's talking about modern life you know the struggles of the working class the, the love heartache you know all these incredible and so that definitely inspired me to write and from a very early age very early age like I, I wrote my first feature when I was nine or ten mm-hmm. and, and I, I can tell you what I wrote it about I wrote it about uh, Glaswegians going doing the water which which means going down the water. So, so Glaswegians would go on holiday about an hour's boat journey from Glasgow, which is, you know, I suppose it's the Long Island and stuff like that. In New York, they do the same, yeah? Maybe yeah. back in the day. They yeah. Would, yeah. Or so, up the Hudson. Yeah, as simple as that, really. It's just, to, you know, where you can afford to go, which is normally quite close. I suppose these days they'd call that staycation. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. So you had this, obviously, this natural talent, that interest in poetry and probably a love for prose and for writing. But there had to be a leap that got you into journalism and how did that sort of connect to the type of journalism that's defined your life and your career and your success? I, I, I get asked a lot about what, make, what makes you a successful journalist. And one of the things I do now is I, I lecture at Cambridge and human rights and, and, I, and, I, and I think that a lot of the students ask me where I get my ideas from, where do I find the stories and... And in Scotland, you have a saying, which is um, which your grandmother would probably have said as well, is that you can't teach that, and and it means you, you can't teach that. And if I was to be honest, if I was to think where my journalistic instinct comes from, I would say that it's something that can't be taught. It's something inherent. It's like I, if I was sitting in a cafe, I would hear something, and that would trigger my curiosity, and that by definition would probably lead me somewhere to find the story. Not that I'm spying or eavesdropping on people, but I can smell a story. It's it's just pure instinct. The day that I became a journalist, my life changed forever because I was always looking for stories. When I can get, I, you know, I, I became a tabloid journalist when I first started and, and a successful one. And it's a good tabloid journalist. I, you know, a lot of people might have argued that I should have stayed a tabloid journalist because I was like a dog with a bone, you know, ferocious. This is in, and, this um, is, I take it this is in Glasgow or something like the Daily Record. Yeah, so I, I, I worked for Daily Record, which is, we used to sell a million copies a day. I mean, it was one of the biggest newspapers in Britain, the real emblem of working class Scots. I mean, everyone had the Daily Record, right? And um, I don't know what the equivalent would be, the New York Post in the States. It was yeah, probably would be the yeah, New York Post, yeah. And it just, I just remember, you know, going into the newsroom for the first time and, and they, they had the old printing presses there before they moved and they, just what a newsroom is like is a very testosterone-fueled environment and, you know, I, I, I was a young graduate and I, and I didn't really, I mean, I went to Stirling University. I mean, you know, university, I was the first member of my family to go to university, but I, I generally regard it as a bit of a waste of time and I didn't, I was already a journalist, right? I mean, I was working night shifts at the Sun when I was at university, another newspaper and I, I I didn't need to. I didn't need to go to university to to learn to become a journalist, which is what I say to my own children. If you want to do something, start at eighteen. And um, and so, and I remember going into the newsroom and just being terrified. All these really gruff 
Scots, you know, crime correspondents, people that have been on the job for 30 years, ferocious characters, heavy drinkers, you know, like literally four or five pints of beer at lunchtime. And, and, you know, a lot of them couldn't even function sober. They couldn't write without having five or six drinks. And that's the environment that you go into, you know, people trying to smoke in the office, even though they were trying to face that out at that point. And the newspaper itself was the den of iniquity, right? And I just, I remember just like, the instinct coming into play, I remember, you know, one powerful anecdote was this little girl, she was two years old and she'd fallen off the balcony of a, a high rise flat in Glasgow. I think the 12th floor of the, and she died, she'd hit the ground and died and it was big news. And I, the story didn't sit well with me at all. I just didn't feel the story was right. And, and I went to, to, to mass, the chapel next to the, the, the high rise estate where she, she'd grown up. And there was only about a dozen people in the, in the mass and the priest had said, uh, I can't remember the mum's name, but he said that, you know, he's got a message from her to the congregation and that she's sorry. And uh, she's sorry that she she threw the girl out of the window. And I, you know, my jaw drops, and and I realised that she killed the kid. And but what drew me to go and try and find something in the story? It just didn't. It's because the story didn't add up, right? It just didn't add up. And then she got sectioned under the Mental Health Act as, as we went to press. And you know, there, and there's I mean, hundreds of examples so why, like that throughout my career. Just, just something like that. Why wouldn't the the priest or the community come forward and? tell the police they'd already told the police the police just hadn't told anyone else ah oh, see right and you <laughs> uncovered it right okay yeah you're talking the difference of a day because the police did you know the police were going to go through the process of releasing the information right but you just didn't expect the priest to tell the community first <laughs> so the priest doesn't you know the priest isn't subject to contempt of court but the thing is it wasn't this was actually a priest is subject to contempt of court and this is i guess the lesson in, in this from a journalistic sense is small margins Small margins make you a genius. So the fact that I've got that story an hour before, 20 minutes before anyone else makes me a genius, right? And so I started to realize that, and I, I, I made a joke, you know, that I, about your running is that, you know, like you, I'm a, I'm a fast runner, you know, it's like I, I, I started to realize that being first on the scene and, and being quick to the story was the key to everything. And I became really good at that. And, and never stopping, never, you know, having that work ethic. Do you think that work ethic has served you well throughout your career? And that tenacious yeah. ability to just to sort of keep pushing yourself? I think so. I think that, you know, even like I, I would do night shifts, like like, like all young journalists. So you'd, night shift would be you'd start your shift at eight o'clock and, uh, and then finish at two in the morning. It's called the graveyard shift for a reason, because you always end up covering murders. In, in, in true Taggart style in Glasgow, you end up covering murders, you know, murder, <laughs> and, a murder. And, um, and it makes me laugh because back in the day, of course, they didn't really have Google and before the advent of social media, obviously, and the newsroom was Google. So you'd be working night shift and you'd be on the desk and then the phone would go and, and there'd be all these people in the pub and there'd, there'd just be noise and shouting and drinking. And then you'd, you'd just hear suddenly, shh, I've got the record on the phone. And then, and then you'd be like, record newsroom. And they would and they would say, who scored the winning goal in the Scottish Cup final in uh, 1936, right? And you'd be like, ah. And so you, but I didn't. See, and 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 you know for a fact, right? There's 30 people in the pub, and they're all about to kill each other if you don't give the answer because they're all. <laughs> but they just think that. So they so the, their relationship with a newspaper was that. The newspaper was the Oracle, but but it was always just calling the. But I, and I, and I remember just an example of this work ethic is getting a call at like uh, midnight, and most journalists at that time would just be like, 
I'm I'm on my way out, mate. I'm going home. I'm done. My shift's done. I'm going to try and get a last drink and then I'm going to go to bed. And it, there'd been an incident, a, a murder at a nightclub in Paisley, ironically, which is not far from the Daily Records office in Glasgow. And so I went to the nightclub in the pouring rain, pouring rain. And I just thought, I'm going to find a story here. And I interviewed loads of people. And, you know, this one guy had spent ages interviewing him and I had all my notes and everything. And then a, a few days later, I was back on days and the Strathclyde police, the police, local police force from Glasgow turned up at the Daily Record offices and they, they used to come and meet me quite a lot. And they took me into a little side office and said, is this you? Knowing it was me, is a photograph of me interviewing this guy in the, in the rain outside the nightclub. And it took me about a second to basically work out that I'd interviewed the killer. I was like, that's the killer, isn't it? Because it's straight away, you know. And they were like, and they were like, we can't comment, possibly comment. I said, it's the killer. I said, and do you want my notes? I'll give you my notes, but I want this, this, this. And so he ends up the process. But, you know, but I've grown up with brilliant journalists, but there's a small amount of us that would go out at midnight in the rain, uh, you know. So that's your work ethic. What about your sense of self-belief and ability to deliver? What do you think has been the greatest influence on that? I think sport gave me a lot of belief. I think that... You know, I think in another world, if I hadn't been good at football as a kid, I mean, every, you know, every, t- every time a kid gets murdered in a housing estate in Scotland, they're called a talented footballer, you know, <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they never are, you know, they never are. But I was lucky in the sense that I was and that almost, like, almost insulated me because I, sm- I was quite a smart kid and I, I could easily have slipped through the net and just been this little kind of smart aleck in the corner, you know, and, but because I was good at football, I was kind of left alone and I was, I was allowed to thrive in that environment and that probably gave me confidence. The word in Glasgow is gal. And as I would never describe it, which means cocksure, it means, means it kind of means borderline arrogant. And a lot of people probably would, would mistake me as arrogant, certainly in my past. I'm not as much now, but there's probably a similarity there between the classic case of someone that is smart. You either you can either get by without being harassed or bullied, is if you're one funny or you're good at sport. Hmm. And you sort of delivered on that. Very, very true. I don't think I was that funny as a kid. I'm not sure I'm that funny as an adult. Do you know, I recently had a conver- I recently had a conversation with someone, and I was, I almost had a kind of bit of body experience, and I realised I'm actually getting too serious. You know, I'm just quite this earnest person. I think that you know, 100, 126 countries later, whatever, and all the horrors I've seen have just turned me into this kind of over earnest, rather melancholy. I mean, I, I think I, you know, I when I was kind of thinking about the interview, I, I, I know, I, I definitely think that I am quite self-reflecting. Um, and maybe that, maybe part of that comes from being an only child for 11 years of my life. Because uh, I'm not an only child. I have a lovely sister and have a great relationship with her, but everyone calls me an only child. So anyway. Just on that is that whole point of self-reflection and, and being a journalist. I mean, you talked a bit about Burns and I think Burns got one of the classic quotes is, but oh, would some power the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. You obviously, as a journalist, you can insulate yourself from what other people think because you just pursue the truth so to a certain extent you have to uh, remove yourself and and not worry about what people what people think of you you can't be too self-conscious too sensitive to it you have to be tough and hard i would suspect i think you definitely have to be quite thick-skinned because it's easy to create enemies as, a, as a, certainly as a campaigning or investigative journalist you, you know a lot of people Eric, you know, maybe touched on that a little bit later. You know, one of the, one of the things about Burns is that he's he's two things: he's muscular and he's maudlin. Maudlin. It's maudlin. A, it's maudlin a universal word. I mean, I think maudlin's quite a Scottish yeah. word. It's uh, quite, quite common. Maudlin means effectively uh, again going back to this kind of slightly melancholy, a wee bit self-reflective, and but muscular. Obviously, you know, it's like you know my favourite line. One of my favourite films is *Chariots of Fire*, and, and Eric Liddell is a massive hero of mine, as, as he is to many Scots. I'm sure certainly to you, Mark. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
and there's a line in the film uh, written by Colin Welland, a Welshman actually, but beautifully written screenplay. And, and Welland says, uh, or he wrote that, you know, they were having a conversation with Lidl and, and they were trying to get him to convert from rugby to, to becoming an Olympic athlete. And, and he said, Eric, this is a time for a muscular Christian. Yeah, and, I remember that. Yeah. And, it, and it's such a powerful line because you, you realise that to connect with people, to try and be successful at what you do, there's going to be a bit of aggression there. There's got to be a bit of arrogance. There's got to be a bit of a bit of muscle, and and and, and I think that's one of the reasons why Burns appeals to me and, and you know a lot of other Scotch writers is because he's muscular and maudlin. He's he's a drunk. He's a flanderer. He's a plowman. He's a socialist. He's a revolutionary. He's he's a hundred different things, right? But he he we can shape him into what we aspire to be. But I I think that. As a journalist, you've got to be thick-skinned. You've got to be a wee bit muscular. And, and I would argue you've got to be a bit self-reflective as well because you've got this quite a solemn responsibility, right? Were there any, are there any teachers at school that influence you greatly or your sense of purpose? I was in Africa on assignment. I think I was in Liberia and I was working as a Sunday Times Africa correspondent. And I, and I, and I heard a BBC World Service radio documentary on teachers. And it, and it was all these quite famous people talking about teachers and the positive influence teachers had had in their lives and how this one guy, he, he basically said he'd never reached out to his teacher and said, and the teacher had died. And he basically shaped his entire career as a, a surgeon. I just thought, oh my God, I've, you know, I had this amazing teacher called David Jack. He was my religious studies teacher in secondary school. And he just gave me the most incredible confidence in my ability to think a little bit more intellectually, right? But I remember we were just, we were studying Hinduism because uh, he's a religious studies teacher. And I remember him asking the class a question about Shiva. Now Shiva has a third eye. And he said, um, does anyone know why Shiva has a third eye? And everyone gave these these answers, right? And 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 the answers were. I mean, I have to be honest. I mean, I, I can't I can't remember the specific of the answers, but the they were they were fairly. I guess they were fairly prosaic. And I, and I came up with this idea, and I said perhaps Shiva has a third eye in the center of his forehead so that he can see the world from a different perspective. And there was this kind of silence in the classroom, and no one else knew what the hell I was talking about. And at the end of the class, he pulled me aside and he said, "It's a really good answer. Not a lot of kids your age think like that." And and I was like, "Okay." And then I think from that moment on, I, I took more of an interest in his class and he was very in, engaged in my education and, and was a huge influence in me. And of course, later I lived in India, although my wife is Sikh, but I, I lived in India and, and found out that my answer was wrong because she was got a third eye to turn gaze towards the ocean and destroy, I don't know. It was Oppenheimer that said, I am Shiva, the destroyer. Yeah. When he That's invented right. the, the, worlds, the yeah. yeah, when he split the atom or invent, not, whatever, whatever they invented the nuclear bomb. But, but what was it? Which one was it? Anyway, but basically, hydrogen bomb so there we go but sorry to finish the anecdote oh, it's, right. it's, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a consequence of um of um the radio documentary that i'd heard when i was on assignment is i contacted mr jack david as we are now we're facebook friends and i just said i said you know i wrote in this letter and it was in the field and i'd had a few beers and bad day in a refugee camp and it was probably quite flowery but it was like you've had this extra and he knew it was of course i mean i don't mean to sound arrogant but I'm reasonably well known as a journalist and he and he just he just wrote back to me the next day and said he was almost like reduced to tears by the fact that i take the time to and and it made me realize that we don't thank our teachers enough you know it's a really good point yeah it's something that a pr- profession uh, lacking in recognition from both um, the public and the parents and also probably many uh, students 
but he but he did but he did nail me because he made he made me basically go back to my school and give a talk. So that was the that was the price of me contacting him. I had to go back. To oh, that's, my one, that's wonderful. You talked about your journalistic career at the beginnings, and can you take us through the the adventurous career that spanned war correspondence to investigative journalism and all the way through to content creation. And across that, storytelling seems to be the red thread that runs through everything you do. Uh, storytelling with a purpose. Can you just talk a bit more about that journey and what inspired you to focus on that? I think, um, I think you know... I, I, I know you mentioned I, Tintin and that being that initial inspiration. But to jump from being a... I mean, plenty of people, I'm sure. I, I interviewed Gordon Young, founder... And the, the drum. The drum. Of the drum. And he started out, obviously, in Glasgow as well, creating his own school fanzine magazine and then launching the Glaswegian and then obviously went into media. You went beyond Glasgow. You went from being a journalist for the Daily Record, as you say, a very successful and respected tabloid journal in, the, in, in Scotland and to a certain extent in the UK, but went from there into broadsheet journalism and international journalism. So what was it that spurred you on and led you to take that different path out of Scotland? I think that, you know, you mentioned the theme of serendipity. I mean, I, you know, one of the serendipities in my life was, was meeting my wife and I've and been working in a lot of foreign assignments at that point. And, and I met her in, during the tsunami in Sri Lanka, 2004. She was there for the BBC. And um, I think that, that was quite a hard thing to cover. You know, the tsunami in 2004, 2005 remains unprecedented. And, you know, but this, this tsunami obviously was 230,000 people died. I mean, I, was, I, was, I think we were there for three, four weeks, almost a month. And, and I met Navdeep in a school where 400 children had died. And I remember, I remember being in the school and there's a photograph of me taken in the school by a friend of the UN and I've got my head in my hands and, um, and I'm crying and I'm, I'm really upset. You know, I, and I think that the school was coming, the story was coming to, I hate to say it, but the story was coming to an end. We'd, we'd all been, you know, from, you know, walking across beaches, you know, full of dead bodies. And, you know, everyone that's a journalist that were there in the early stages had found a piece of a child or a piece of, you know, someone stuck in a tree. Or I, you know, I, know, I know journalists that covered the Lockerbie disaster and fine journalists, but they, they struggled. They struggled. They were finding people in trees because they were first yeah, on. The gardens, yeah. I know it was horrific as well. And, and and obviously the the tsunami was very extreme version of that. And and I met I met Navdeep. And and one of the things that I saw in the school was it was the school register. And I realised the reason that we were all at the school because the the local authority had asked all the pupils to come to the school to register their names. And I kind of quickly realised that we'd done that to work out who was dead and who was alive. And and the school um, register was drying. You can, it must have been under a puddle for, for weeks on end, just still soaking wet. And it was drying in the stairs. I mentioned it to Nafti. But you could see the kids lighting up and they were looking at each other and they were like opening their mouth and saying, have you seen such and such? Have you seen such and such? They were talking. They were trying to work out which of their friends had died. It's, you know, I was so impacted by that because I, I, I just thought that's just the worst thing imaginable. The children, it's an unfathomable thing, right, in terms of all of our histories, the tsunami, even to this day. But for the children to try and comprehend that, and they're, they're trying to comprehend it, not in the context of it impacting 14 countries and 200 quarter of a million people dying, but just in terms of has their best friend made it. It's always that classic thing when you tell a story of like 229,000 people dying, it sounds horrific. When you tell the story of an individual or a group of small individuals in a very personal context, it always has more power. And obviously, and, and certainly for the victims of that, it must have been a horrific scene to encounter. And actually, so to give 
that that context of kids probably looking distraught and bereft, knowing that their their friends are gone, it must have been very hard to to digest and to watch and to report on. But I think the one thing this gave me an appetite for was this kind of knowledge that the children, effectively, in in, in this story, in this in this little window that I I had at the time were completely helpless to the the circumstances to everything around them and it made me feel made me feel a bit helpless but then also a bit like well I have to do them justice you know I remember what I wrote about as well I, I um, with the first line of that the piece that I wrote in that that day was was a simple wooden desk a pencil and the registration form this is how they count the dead in a school playground in southern Sri Lanka and it was simple and I realised that actually if I'm going to hit people with it, with how it is, you have to make it simple because it's child's play, right? It's like kids working out who's dead. But, but anyway, but the serendipity aspect of it was I met Navdeep and then we we had it. She was BBC's Asia correspondent and we had a drink and, and, and we got married six months later. So, you know, so I, moved, I moved to Delhi and, and lived with her in India and became the, the Asia correspondent for The Observer and The Guardian. Well, let's go back. So what led you, Dan, to go from being a tabloid journalist um, into international broadsheets, particularly covering wars, social injustice and conflicts around the world? I think when I, when I was living in India working for the Observer and the Guardian, I, I found myself waking up to globalisation because it was a first foreign posting for me in the sense that I, I, I was surrounded by poverty every day of my life, right? And when I started to kind of become obsessed with the ATB of life, I was thinking, okay, so how did that jumper get from A to B? How did, you know, where's this made? What's that made? And I, I just became, going back to this you know, a phrase that you used earlier, this, this kind of curiosity, but the curiosity in me was burning. And it was all to do with, you know, at this point in 2000, 2004, 2005, Starbucks was becoming a thing. There was, you know, companies where there was, there was much more globalization. The high street was starting to disappear. Big companies and corporations were starting to, to really put an imprint on the world in terms of fast fashion was starting and, you know, lots of different things. Were, oh, of course, was, it was when Naomi Klein published her book, No Logo, which was sort yeah. of the siren call to a generation to sort of wake up, a wake up call to the, the potential downside of um, globalization. We put it much better than me, but I mean, I, I would, say, I would say that if I was to be really honest, I think that my patch at this time, as journalistic patch, was Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, India, Afghanistan, Burma, and Bangladesh. And when I was there, every one of these countries was at war, including India, including India, because they had insurgencies in the north and all sorts of stuff coming on. And and so I found myself just going around in circles, you know, I got arrested in Burma and trying to cover death camps and, you know, covered the civil war in Nepal, covered the war in Afghanistan, natural disasters. It was just, it was like stock and trade, you know, roving foreign correspondent. But every, every, every time I finished an assignment, I would go home to Delhi uh, where I was surrounded by street children, poverty everywhere, like literally outside the compound where I lived in Delhi, there was six-year-olds sleeping in this gutter. And so for me, it was like, I started to kind of become really interested in the journeys of these children. And that drew me into child labour investigations, which I, for many years I was very well known for. I mean, I, I, as well, you know, I've, I've exposed the gap, gap Inc. many times from, you know, like three times, I think, for major global investigations. But I found children working in the supply chain of Gap Kids, which became a major international story on Good Morning America. And, you know, we, we ran, all over, ran all over the world. And I started to work with an NGO called the Global March Against Child Labour, 
and I brought them huge international attention because obviously my stories were were, were getting covered all over the world and, uh, they, and they, they were given the Nobel Peace Prize uh, the founder was given the Nobel Peace Prize uh, two years ago and so on and so I worked with them intensively on child labour breaking into sweatshops and and uncovering this I guess this my insatiable appetite for the ATB of life right where does this jacket come from where does the where are these shoes made where's the leather from these shoes made and India was like a the best place in the world to find these things. India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. I remember one sweatshop that we found in uh, in Delhi making clothes for a Western company. And I can't name the company because it ended up in Slate Legal. We never published it. An American company, very large one. And they were, uh, the children were on the fifth the fifth floor with a containment building in Delhi of a slum. And they were working as bonded slaves. The kids were aged between 10 and 12. And... Um, they were working 16, 17 hour days and five floors below the kids who, because basically the, the sweatshop owners had locked the door and, and basically given them this sari embroidery. So they were having to embroider for 16, 17 hours a day. And they were sliding, they were sliding food under the door and water uh, was being given to them, you know, and they had a big kind of, uh, kind of urn water on in the corner. So they were prisoners basically. And sometimes the sweatshops, they keep on top of them, you know, they, they kind of hit them and they, they you know, they, they, they use sticks called lattes and they beat them with them. But in this case, they were being left to their own devices. And if they didn't deliver the next morning, a certain a prerequisite number of, of jerseys or, or garments, then they, they were beaten. So th- it was almost like they were hostages. But the worst thing about the story was five floors below the sweatshop was a school. And this was the thing, this was the thing that really broke my heart. So every day they were working 16, 17 hour days. And for half of that day, listening to school children play and lessons and the cycle of life, the school bell, you know, the clanging bell they have in India. Yeah. And, and that was quite sobering. And, and I think that, that moment for me almost put me on to this campaign that I was going to tell the world about child labor and I was going to, I wasn't going to stop. You know, it was, it was the ultimate ignominy for me because they, they weren't only bonded slaves, but they were listening to children have the life that children should have, which is a life of play and education. A hard story. I think anyone that goes to your Wikipedia page will get a sense of the, the awards that you've won for your endeavours. And fairly, what I think could be descri- fairly described as a fearless mission to uncover these stories. I know that um, Churchill is often reference as saying this quote I actually don't think it was him I think it was an actually came an ad from the from Budweiser funnily enough which is um, success is not final failure is not fatal it's the capability to continue that matters but your in terms of your story your failure in any one of these instances could well have been fatal. You're taking on large corporations, probably with brutal security details in countries where um, journalists may not be respected to the degree they are in, in America and, and, and in the West. And your fearlessness is probably taking into some very sort of, uh, risky places. I mean, obviously, seeing those children suffering like that must have spurred you on. But there's still something else inside you that must give you that, sort of, that fearlessness to go further than other people have to uncover these, these human rights injustices? I think I was a little bit annoyed when I became a foreign correspondent because I, I, I realised that there was a clubby nature to it, right? Um, there's a journey that you go, there's a journey that you go on and the, the kind of, uh, the rarefied air to, to, to become, to join the rarefied air of the, the foreign correspondent in the British, British newspapers like the Times or even the Guardian. The Guardian is just as guilty. Where you... You go from private school to Oxford or Cambridge to an internship on the desk at the Times and then, you know, then by definition, you know, a job on the diary or, and then you become a foreign correspondent and it's a well-trodden path, right? I mean, 
you know, I, I know so many of my peers and colleagues have gone that way. Same but, in diplomatic circles with foreign office. Same, there's a parallel. A bit interesting, you know. A bit interesting, you know. If advertising is the same, but 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 yeah, but any- it is uh, historically. Apart from the creative department, it's often been a working class area of success. So yeah, it's probably that's, the, that, yeah. that's 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 worthy of more reflection. But I and I but I I certainly think that. I, I wanted to get my hands dirty and I and I realized straight early on that I I wasn't going to sit and play tennis and rest in my laurels and, you know, write a book. I was going to go out there and, and, and I was on a mission, I guess. And I remember breaking into a sweatshop with my photographer, um, Adrian, Adrian Fisk, um, and um, and I had a translator with me who himself was a former sweatshop uh, owner. And we got attacked by the the guards carrying these big wooden sticks and they fractured the translator's skull and then came after me and and they smashed Adrian's cameras. And I remember this Keystone Cops scenario being chased through the slum in Delhi. It's 100 degrees and they're chasing me through the slum and Adrian's going in another direction and there's three of them on me. And then, you know, I say, Mark, I'm a decent runner, not like you, but I can run. And and, and, uh, and eventually there's only two of them on me. And I, and I kind of turned over my shoulder and I was still running. And I thought, this is ridiculous. They're just little guys. And I turned around and started chasing them. <laughs> and then, and then and my driver's, my driver's Sukram was on the other side of this river. And I, and I remember just thinking, why am I chasing these guys? <laughs> and I turned again and then got, got to him and Adrian had found his way around. And, you know, the, the anecdotes around sweatshop investigations are, are you know, all over the world or I could probably spend an hour just talking about them. But I mean, I, I mean, the German press have been in the, the, the media quite a lot in the, in the last few weeks because of this the fake journalism scandal involving the, the Spiegel journalist um, but yeah. as, as a freelancer I, I worked for Stern magazine and, and Stern have the most extraordinary check and measure system and I investigated a company called Otto which is Otto are a multi-billion pound German industrial corporation and, and they owned a fashion chain called Heine big catalogue company in Germany super successful we should maybe legal this but I think it's pretty safe yeah. and um, and basically I, I uncovered child labor and Otto's supply chain. And, and the German, the CEO of Otto was about to retire. And this was a scandal he could not cope with. So he said, shut it down. And so they put pressure onto Stern and they started investigating me. They were investigating Stern. They were trying to do anything to shut it down. And Stern said that I had to meet lawyers from Otto in Delhi to show the evidence and to explain the story, which is not the British way. The British way is that uh, we're going to give you 24 hours and we're going to call your press office and we're going to say, we found children in your supply chain, mate. Here's the evidence, here's the pictures. If you don't reply in 24 hours, there's a no comment, which, is, which isn't really fair. I mean, it's it, you should give them longer. In fact, we I was one of the journalists to encourage this kind of longer period. But the period with Stern and this company, Otto, became six weeks allowing them six weeks to respond. So, so Otto sent over uh, some lawyers from their, their, their corporate headquarters in Germany and some dentists from Germany. And so the next question is, why have they sent dentists to meet an investigative journalist? And I met them in the Imperial Hotel in Delhi. And I was in a baseball cap and my trainers and possibly a little bit hungover looking at these German dentists produce x-rays of the children's mouths. And they basically said to me that the children I'd found making their clothes in sweatshop were not children, they were young adults, and that the photographs 
the, the x-rays of the mouths of these young adults prove that they, they had molars and erupting molars and had reached puberty. They'd reached puberty and they were saying this in broken English. And so you can imagine what happened next was, you know, I stood up and I started shouting and I was, I wouldn't, you see, the thing is now the, the more tranquil me would be very much like, you're making a mistake here, right? Think about this. But then it was just outrage and total war. And it took me another month, I think, but I got the birth certificates to the kids and they were 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. And we ran, the, we ran the dentist anecdote in full. So it's a multi-billion pound company. So that CEO must have retired in uh, some, somewhat of a, a cloud of disgrace. He had another year. And then he quit. I think your question is in the German parliament, of course, as well. And, and But if you, let's, just, let's just basically drill this down into a simple fact. A multi-billion pound company photographed the mouths of children. To justify their... To, to justify their supply chain. Yeah. And it's in Stern. I mean, if you can read German, you know, the, the English translation of it, but it's an incredible story. But the thing is, I mean, that, you know, I, I give a talk at Cambridge, which is when corporations attack. And, and that's entirely based on my experiences of companies coming after me personally. Or, you know, my Wikipedia page you mentioned earlier has, has been assaulted by so many different, edited by so many different PR companies and lobbyists. And, you know, what can you do? We're going to come on and talk a bit about the affliction of fake news at the moment, but I'd just like to come back to investigative journalism a bit more. I mean, you went, your response to that obviously was rage and and unbridled anger, but investigative journalism must have with it, apart from obviously your your fearlessness, your unrelenting desire to dig deeper to find that story. To do that must combine a, an interesting combination of what I perceive to be analytical, analytical thinking and creativity. Because you don't, stories just don't turn up on your desk, particularly when you're a foreign correspondent in the field. It must take digging. It must take um, a, a bit of an analysis and problem solving and creativity in terms of how to unlock answers from people or relationships. Can you talk to me a bit about that interesting sort of combination? And if, if, if it's not that, what is it that allows you to get to the story or get to the heart of the story like you did there? So I, I think that one of the, one of the biggest challenges of, of being an investigative journalist, particularly in, around human rights, is, is um, compassion fatigue. And I think a lot of people these days talk, talk about living in the attention economy, right? And, and, and I think that this is a big problem for anyone that wants to communicate uh, human rights issues to a, to a global audience. And, and this is maybe one of the reasons why I was able to set up a creative agency, a content agency, because I realized that from a very early stage that it sounds, it sounds, you know, if you listen to the anecdotes about investigating well, investigate tobacco companies and, you know, you know, global supply chains or covered wars or disasters, and these are all very much stock and trade, maybe not the big global investigations, but the stock and trade job of a foreign correspondent, right? From a very early stage, I was very interested in finding new ways to tell stories. And, and it was one of the first, you know, major foreign correspondents in the UK to tackle multimedia in a, in a really robust way. I, I saw the, the very early potential of that. And and to this day, newspapers still make terrible films, right? Apart from the Guardian, make some, but the Times groups, you know, film it, it's appalling. It's never improved. I've never understood this because it's a huge gap in the market. But so I had this combination of two things, I think, lateral thinking and a desire to tell it in a way that would impact people. And so a good example of this was during the World Cup in, in South Africa. I was posted to Africa as a, as a Sunday Times Africa correspondent. And uh 
and I decided to focus on uh, the World Cup. Nobody was talking about HIV, and so I watched uh, the first. I think the first game or the first couple of games of the World Cup in an HIV hospice in Cape Town, where we photographed the patients who were literally dying to palliative care. I mean, they were there. For the, they were literally in their last, the last legs. It was just after the last few weeks of their lives, and we interviewed them and spoke to them about their lives as they watched the final game, the beginning of the World Cup, which they wouldn't see at the end of the tournament. And I, and I thought this was such a startling juxtaposition between these athletes at the peak of their powers and the dying patients, and it just mm-hmm. some, you know, summed up this real powerful narrative. And we eventually did a radio piece on it. And and I kind of started at that point in Africa to think that if I'm going to connect with an audience and not make them fatigued by the poverty, what they call people call it poverty porn. It's a terrible saying, but I don't want to use that saying. But for them to have compassion fatigue, for them not to care, it's like you know, in in, in any any famine, and I've covered famines in Somalia and Sudan and Mozambique. In any famine, right there uh, is a point where even with the tsunami, there's a point where the viewer or the reader just gets fed up. They're just they're too full up, right? They don't want to eat anymore. And so I guess this what this spurred in me was almost like a more confrontational form of journalism, but something that also had really powerful content. So I decided to write a magazine piece about child rape in South Africa. The starting point of that conversation is, right, to your news editor, to the, the magazine editor of the Sunday Times is, you're going to write about child rape? I mean, who writes about child rape, right? Nobody. It's like taboo. And um, I worked with Mariela Fura, a brilliant Swiss photographer based in, in Nairobi. And the story eventually won awards and stuff. But the, the, the most important part of the story was that I got access to a clinic where children had been raped and had been taken in for assessment. And then and I asked the nurse, if the, the, the chief nurse, the sister, if we could look through the, the photographs and the drawings, sorry, the drawings that the children made when they were, they were admitted to the ward. And it was like therapy. So they would, they, would, they would draw pictures of what happened to them. And so we looked through hundreds of these pictures and they're devastating. I can't, you know, and, and Mariella had very cleverly taken photographs of the children holding the pens and they were holding it with their fists. He'd send you the pictures are extraordinary. You know, what does a child that's been sexually abused hold a pen like? Well, they grip it with one hand and a fist and they draw in these these dark, heavy lines. I mean, you can literally see the indentations in the paper, so the depth of the trauma. And I convinced the Sunday Times magazine to run these these images of the, the, the children's drawings and they're heavy. And, you know, at the end of the day, on a Sunday morning, do people want to read that? Do they want to read about child rape? Do they want to read about what's happened? But it was such an urgent story. I mean, one in four children in, in, in these townships are being sexually abused at the age of three or four. So, so I felt that the urgency of the story needed me to look at it in a creative way to communicate with people. Um, the same thing with piracy. You know, I'd covered piracy in Somalia and everyone was obsessed with piracy, but nobody was really understanding it. So I broke the piracy story down into a supply chain. I realized it had become a business. And so I did a magazine piece interviewing a hostage negotiator who was making hundreds of thousands of pounds a year from negotiating with pirates. I interviewed a pirate. I interviewed the skipper of a ship. I interviewed uh, the, the bag man that took the money off, off the tarmac in Mogadishu. And, and I turned it into a chapter narrative 
which really worked brilliantly because people got this suddenly got this idea of coming alive. I mean, the example that I made recently, I'm, I'm just finished reading A History of Bees, which is fairly rubbish, but it's the same principle. It's like it's a, it's a narrative that focuses on individuals to give you the bigger picture. And so that kind of lateral thinking for me is the key to successful human rights journalism. You know, like everyone was, inve- everyone was investigating FIFA, but I decided to investigate the trafficking of children from Africa to France under the pretense of them having football trials for major clubs. And, 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 and that, the lessons that I learned from Asia and India and Pakistan and places where the world's a supply chain, right? And, and that's always informed my journalism. The, the point of departure is seeing everything as a supply chain. Um, just, to get, just get a sense on the timeline. When you were doing war correspondence, that was before you were doing working in foreign correspondence on supply, uncovering supply chain? No, it's all simultaneous. It's all like you, 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 you know, you, it's not like, you know, the, the thing is, is that one thing that all, any foreign correspondent investigative journalist would say, if you could give them what would be your wish for Christmas, right? What can you give me? And it would be time. Just give me time. <laughs> give me time. Give me, give me a year on this one story and I'll come back. Right. And all of the historically, all of the best journalism, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalism, the award winning journalism, my own award winning journalism has, has been enabled by time and patience. But unfortunately, the day to day is not. So I would go from sweatshop to the, the, the war in Afghanistan or the war in Sri Lanka or, you know, I, but the, what, the thing that bought me time was awards and being successful. And then people would say, we'll give Dan a month on this. And, and that's the difference. And, and also as well, I think that I became much more of a long form feature writer. Like I, I went to cover the, the, the drug wars in Mexico for the Squire. I, 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 you know, the Sunday Times magazine would send me to the Stewie now back to investigate refugees. And, and so I pretty much could just effectively just put a dot on the map and say, right, I'm going to go here. And I still can do that. And, and that, that's just, I guess, success brings you that in some respects. Um, a couple of quick questions, just so, as you're talking through that. One, the obvious question what place have you been where you felt most at risk? And the second, what story didn't you break that you could have broken? You could have broken or could have exposed, given more time. Uh, question, an answer for that. Um, so I think that one of the things that like, I asked, I get asked about a lot is 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 post traumatic stress. And obviously, I, I've I've covered a lot of horrendous situations and conflicts and everything. And I think that I, I remember I remember a few years ago um, being sent to Yemen to uh, investigate the bomber, the shoe bomber who tried to. Um, oh, Richard Reed. Yeah, and Richard Reed's got a better memory than me. Yeah. And I remember, you know, being told by the hotel manager, you know, that I, I, that I was going to get kidnapped um, and, and not feeling very comfortable about that. And, and he personally took me to the airport. And, and the same in Somalia. I mean, I mean, Somalia, I covered the war, the, the Al-Shabaab front line. I went to, the, I went to Somalia and to Mogadishu. And I've been to Somalia a number of times. I've been there to cover the famine anyway. But in, in Mogadishu, I was covering the war between Al-Shabaab and, and the African Union. And we embedded with them. And I was with a photographer called John Cantley, a wonderful guy. And we, we, we started to work together a bit more. And, and our convoy was targeted by a suicide bomb. And the suicide bomb went off early. And it went out right outside the police station or just, just in the edge of a police station. Killed half a dozen people. Missed us. And we were taken to the, the stadium. I think it was a scene in Black Hawk Down where they go to the stadium when they escape, basically. Oh, yeah. Um, it's the same stadium, but that well, it wasn't, they didn't film in Mogadishu, obviously. And we kind of, we, we contoured there and we, we kind of came around in a loop and we, 
you know, we could see the plume of smoke that had come up and we heard, obviously, the explosion. And John Cantley, who was with me at the time, um, he was a very gung-ho character, John. And, you know, we were coming back through the market, central market in Mogadishu. He wanted to jump out and start shooting photographs. And, you know, the, literally, Al Shabaab were, you know, they're, they're, we, we were a target, right? We were a moving target and the African Union guys were quite upset. And, but John... It's really sad that John eventually he was supposed to come to Zimbabwe with me to cover an investigation, and he went to Syria instead, and he was kidnapped by ISIS. Where he's and he's still there. He's John's been John's been in captivity for five years. But the but the the thing that probably a turning point for me coming out of that that backdrop was when I when I flew out of Mogadishu, I landed in Nairobi, and my phone was going crazy, and had all these text messages and you know people emailing me and my, my, and my colleague at the Sunday Times Marie Colvin had been murdered in Syria she'd been killed by Assad's um, regime uh, who targeted her in a shell and so you, you, you do start to realise you know I, I, I was talking recently is that you know when people you like and people you respect are getting kidnapped and killed and you realise that this isn't normal and I think Africa is that you know I, one thing that I, I often say is that Africa is not for wimps it's not for the faint hearted you know I think I've reported from like 40 five or 46 African countries of 55. You know, during my my five or six years there, I was working for the Sunday Times as African correspondent, but also as an investigative journalist and documentary maker for BBC Panorama. And so I didn't have a break from it. I was just constantly on the road and I was constantly, I was investigating blood diamonds. I was investigating human trafficking, piracy, famine, conflict, war. There wasn't really any respite. So I suppose, given that you're married to by this time to Navdeep and you've got children, the, the pressure to probably do the right thing by your family versus doing the right thing by uncovering the next big story brought you to a point of reflection in terms of where you're, the, the next chapter of your journey. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm prone to kind of quotes and, and you know, there's, there's a quote from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which is, um, you know, everyone has three lives, a public life, a private life and a secret life. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's how I approach storytelling, right? Because I, I thought as a correspondent, I had to traverse all three of these things, right? But then something beyond that, I, I, my job was to often reveal an unpalatable truth. And, and you know, my constant companion at this time was Robin Hammonds, who's a National Geographic photographer and like me, very campaigning journalist. And I spent more time with Robin than I, than I probably did with Navdeep, my wife at the time. And we were constantly on the road. But there was an unpalatable truth at the heart of my life is that I was emotionally starting to fall apart and I was struggling and, and, and emotionally. And so there's this disconnect between my life, right? Huge disconnect between me being in, in the Sudan, breaking into a prison and uncovering child soldiers in, tra- in chains or covering the famine in Somalia or, you know, wherever I am and, and, and then going home to my family in Cape Town. And my kids are playing in the pool or we're having Sunday lunch in the vineyard and, or I'm in the sea surfing and it's a terrible disconnect. It's like suddenly you're going from extreme to, to not only normal, but I, I would say idyllic. Anyone, anyone who's been to Cape Town or lives in Cape Town mm-hmm. must understand that. That was probably my mistake because I, I really, the Sunday Times wanted me to be in Nairobi, but I insisted in Cape Town and maybe there would have been less of a disconnect because Nairobi's pretty crazy all the time. So it wouldn't have been that much of a juxtaposition contrast. It came to head for me, I was investigating just a typical idea that I had is that I decided to investigate money. So I, I got a coin, a pound coin in the UK. I got it chemically assessed or whatever. They broke it down and told me what was in it. And I, because I went to prove that the Royal Mint was unethical, that money was unethical. So I went to, I went to a mine, a nickel mine in Madagascar. And then I went to 
a copper mine in Chile and then I was trying to prove the supply chain of money is corrupted and it's like it's destroying the environment and it's not paying people properly which I did eventually prove in the Royal Mint I had to admit they didn't know where the metal came from but anyway but anyway I was in Bolivia um, in a side assignment from there and we had crossed we'd driven across the desert from Bolivia to Chile and it's, it's not a benign journey right it's a horrible 14 hour jarring journey right but somehow in the middle of it we got lost in the desert and you know i'd been in much worse situations and and normally quite philosophical but i just burst into tears i just had just had it i think it had come at the end of a very very intense period of reporting and i i was sitting in you know just in tears and you know robin's looking at me my photographer like what's wrong with that <laughs> Do you know what I mean? it's like and I, I but i think that if i realized that Probably I, going back 2006, 2007 was when I first started to show signs of post-traumatic stress. You know, like there's a wonderful scene in a film called The, um, the Hurt Locker, where, where and Catherine Bigelow does an incredible job with that. But when he goes to the supermarket aisle and he starts, he starts just losing, losing his shit, looking at the cereal. Uh, and, and, and actually, a friend of mine really this a very similar story of, of experiencing that. And I can understand that. I can relate to that, right? It's like the things that get you, it's just, it creeps up on you. It hits you when you least expect it, you know? Um, I think the one thing that just before that, that incident, we, me and Robin had been in, in the Congo covering the, cover, covering the war in the Congo. And um, we'd interviewed a woman who'd been raped by a militia. And the woman had recognised her rapist and he'd cut out her eyes. Oh. And then we went to Bosnia and, after and she, that. And she lived. Yeah, she lived, yeah. The photographs were there. Yeah, I mean, that's... But, but I remember interviewing her and I remember, you know, I remember, you know, the thing is, I, I'm kind of weird as a, as a, as a correspondent or interviewee because I remember holding her hand during the interview, which seems totally inappropriate. But in Africa and Asia even, really less so in Asia, but in Africa, that's quite normal. If someone's upset, you hold their hand. And I, I've never really believed... These, these... Sorry, go ahead. I've never really believed in this distance, you know, between, it's a very English thing, I think. I think this goes back to being working class Scott, is that it's a very English thing to kind of sit in a pedestal and say, you know, what is that awful book? Um, it's not awful book, sorry, the, the title of a book. is in, So during the war in Bosnia, a correspondent had gone in, I think the correspondent worked for a TV network, had gone into a gymnasium in Bosnia, uh, uh, sorry, had gone into, a correspondent had gone into a gymnasium in Croatia in Split where refugees were staying and and he basically said has anyone here been raped and can speak english and and it became it later became a title for a book and i think that there's a real disconnect between the the correspondent particularly the private educated correspondent and the interviewee because there somehow seems to be an entitlement there and i've never felt like an entitled correspondent i've always empathized in the deepest way with the people i'm interviewing and I haven't felt the pain because, look, I, you know, I've not been raped. I've not lived in a refugee camp. I've not been through anything that they've dealt with. But in some level, I felt that I have cared. How do you control what must be quite raw anger in the face of such gross injustice that you've experienced and seen firsthand in the world? live with it i mean the the organizations that you work for presumably don't give you counseling therapy sessions to deal with this i think there's definitely been a you know, what do they say about foreign correspondents they're dead, dead drunk or divorced um 
and uh thankful thankfully you're none of us dan <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is like it, it could easily have gone in any of those directions and i think that obviously having lived deep in my life and she herself was an accomplished foreign correspondent understands um the challenges of the job but i think also i i did start to go to therapy to try and try and reconcile a lot of things that were going on in my head um over, over the years and, and um and I think confronting it certainly helps. But, but that's, I suppose that's the negative about being a Scot, Mark. You'll understand that, is that you, there's not a lot of Scots in there. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like they're very stoical. No, I mean, it's a completely Scotch man of a certain age brought up to take it on the chin and just get on with life and don't complain. That's taking that sort of slightly stoic attitude to life probably is ingrained in us. And I, and I think by definition that, that attitude is, is harmful. So I think, you know, I think one of the first things that I discussed was was how I felt, uh, and the therapist, one of my first therapists said that I was I was in mourning. I was in a quite a kind of perpetual state of mourning, <laughs> which is which is you know, and and I think that if I was to say, well, you know, I'm I'm lucky because I have this you know successful life, and you know, what have I got to be upset about? And that was how I'd almost kind of I'd almost reconciled it by saying that what have I got to be upset about? Mm-hmm. I'm going to, because I'm conscious of your time and it's late there, I'm just going to get onto the last few questions. So, you know, I've known you since 2015 and you've always struck me as someone that holds truth very dear and this, this interview has obviously shown your passion for, for the truth. We're living in a world where trust and faith in journalism and the news is being eroded um, to a poisonous degree and we're living with this this term that I deplore fake news and, and, and essentially it's just a deluge of inf- disinformation how do you think we're going to overcome this? I think what we're having with Class uh, Relotius is you know, it's one of one of the worst cases I've heard but I mean Stephen Glass I mean you know there's, there's been other cases over, over the years I mean it seems to me that he's not he's clearly at war with it's not just at war with the truth, but he's he's almost at war with the journalistic establishment. Mm-hmm. There's something in, there's something in him that's that's very um, resentful of, of the organisations he works for, and I and I think obviously it's an extreme case. But there, there's you know journalism is 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 being undermined, you know, on, on a daily basis. I think I think the Guardian's model is excellent. I mean, you know, look, I mean, I work for the Guardian. I think that the the model of journalism is, is outstanding, but they're still not paying journalists enough. But at least we're trying to find new sources of funding journalism. So the Guardian's foreign course, foreign coverage these days is, is is funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. It's funded by Hewlett-Packard. It's funded by... Um, it's, it's funded by foundations but corporations and, and i think that's the, the the road that we have to go down we have to all be invested in journalism and it has to be at the heart of our society and i, I don't mean that in a conceited way i mean obviously there are lots of important jobs but you know you take journalism away and what's left i mean it used to kind of drive me crazy right i mean i'm banned from quite a few countries like you know I'm banned from the Sudan. I'm banned from Egypt for my co- for my covering of the, uh, the, the 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 kidnapping of Christian girls. I'm I'm, I'm you know I, I was banned from Burma for a long time, and obviously I'm I'm banned from Sri Lanka. I only found out recently when I went there to do it to make a film, and they arrested me at the airport and right, deported me. I got banned from covering the war there, and when when I feel like you know. I'm, I'm being banned from countries, right? That seems to not just be a personal affront on me, but it just seems to be an assault on personal on freedom. On you know, like I should have the right to go there and report, right? And when you start banning journalists or you start undermining belief in journalism, you're harming society. 
I would say. I don't know. I mean, it goes back to this idea about creativity, right? Is that, I mean, I'm a really believer in this argument that every emotion counts. So as an investigative journalist, part of you wants to just piss everyone off. You, you, you want to smash the windows of the corporation. You want to tackle big targets. You want to bring them down. You want people to stand up and think this is not good. You want people to be angry. You want to solicit and, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to, almost like tease out something from them. If they're not responding to your story, you're failing, right? If you're, if you're not getting a response, if you're not getting through to the viewer, the listener, to the, to the reader, then you've failed. And you have to find ways to do that in the attention economy that we live in. Was that part of the reason that you set up your own content creation business is to find new ways to deliver storytelling? We set up Mirren because I probably would have ended up getting shot I'm sure, yeah, based on some of the stories you've got, yeah, I'm sure you probably would have. And I think also as well, I think that we had to as a family come up with something that was 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 going to make sure that I was around and and I I would be lying if I was saying it was it was altruistic. It wasn't like suddenly you know we were going to change the world through content, but actually I I, I did realise quite early on, and I spoke to you in the early stages of it that I, that. that we would be good at creating content around social impact issues because we because of our incredible experience, right? Navdeep um, Panmi. So we'd be good at this, and we'd also understand big, big thinking, global issues, and also we'd bring this cultural knowledge. And and you know, with respect to the advertising industry, or you know, there's a lot of things that would be disrupted. But I, I you know, I'd, in the very early stages of Mary and I, I was invited to give quite a lot of talks to, to advertising companies. And I felt at times like I was speaking to children, you know, I just didn't feel that they were really, they weren't, they weren't really engaged in the world in the way that they should be, but also they didn't have any knowledge of a lot of the, the issues they were tackling. You know, they weren't, they weren't able to draw on this backstory. It was actually all quite vacuous. I found that really disappointing, but I also found it an opportunity for us um, I mean, I gave a talk at Google last year in San Francisco and, and I remember, you know, there's a couple of hundred people and it was there in the corporate office. And, and I remember asking how many nationalities are in the room and there was like 30 nationalities or something. And I was really pleased by that because you could see that things are starting to change. Yeah. And even in the last three years, four years, you know this as well as anyone is that there is there is more diversity and people are thinking about storytelling in a, in a, in a different way. And I think the more people like me and the deep that get involved in storytelling for organizations or foundations, whatever, the better, because you've got to really, you've got to get people from all different backgrounds to, to, to form the whole, you know? Okay. Just building on the troubling times that we're living in, obviously there's optimism there as well. And given that you have witnessed injustice and the pain, the suffering uh, to, to a very extreme degree, you were given the keys to the White House or Downing Street, uh, in a lighthearted way, but quite serious. Uh, what would you actually uh, start changing? <clears throat> so I'd, I'd stop Brexit. And, yeah. I mean, I, I would stop Brexit straight away, uh, right in its tracks. I mean, I, I, I'm, uh, I live in Europe. I live in Barcelona. You know, I have Spanish identity card now, and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Brexit. I mean, I after I, I, I've, I've lived in India and. Africa and I lived in Thailand so I've lived I've lived you know all over the world the last 15 years of my life whatever and longer and and, and I have decided to to not live in the UK so because of Brexit so I'm effectively a Brexit because I don't really recognize what's happening to the, to, to the UK in terms of political sentiment and I talked earlier about Thatcherism and about the conservative mismanagement of the country is, is a disgrace so I, I think that um 
uh, austerity is something that concerns me. I mean, I, I did it in conversation with the great war photographer Don McCullen uh, last oh, year. Yeah. So, Sir so Don McCullen. Now. Sorry, I, I did a yeah, I did it in conversation yeah. with Sir with Sir Don McCullen. Yeah. It's so it's so house, and we had dinner after, and 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 Don was talking to me about the shocking poverty in Britain that he he documented and became famous for in his sixties, yeah. uh, and uh, and and I remember just asking him about austerity and he, he was just, he was appalled. He just could see it coming full circle again, you know? And, and I th- so I think divide is something that, that, that really upsets me about the UK. And I think so. I, I certainly, if I was to do a number of things as prime minister, God forbid, because I'm a Scottish nationalist without me, you know, with a small, with a small S and a small N, but I, I do my romantic Scots heart wants Scotland to be independent, but only independent from the Conservative Party or from Whitehall in that sense, you know. Um, <laughs> I would impose a cooperation tax like Germany's of like 30% overnight. Uh, and I would backdate uh, tax on technology companies that have, that have evaded tax. I'd probably look at a one-off tax for the wealthy, the richest 10% in the country, uh, and use that to repair existing structures of the NHS or uh, and, and plug, plug austerity gaps and you know issues like food banks that Britain's facing. Um, uh, and it's, I would... it's interesting. I made me think I saw New York Times journalist Anand Giordardis speak at a couple of events recently he wrote he's recent, recently written a book if you haven't got it you should get your hands on it it's called <clears throat> Winners Take It All and essentially it is his damning indictment of how the great and the good through the redistribution um, reappropriation of the wealth the point one of the one percent uh, helping justify that reappropriation of their their wealth by giving but in giving they're ignoring what would have gone to governments in taxes to cover education, to cover infrastructure, to cover social insurance and all the things that people need. And we're being sold by their stories of their giving when reality is actually they are the cause of actually what the, the distress and the suffering and the social injustice is happening in countries around the world at the moment. So really, really interesting read. Um, yeah, i well, I think just 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 briefly on that is that Paul Heaton, um, the beautiful South uh, lead singer and songwriter and former House Martin, is kind of a bit of a weird hero of mine. I've met him; and I, I, I like him a lot. And, and he he's a he's obviously earned so much money from songwriting. I think they've, they've almost sold as many albums in the UK as the Beatles. And and uh, and he's he's a real tax campaigner. He you know he pays his taxes, and, and the, the band have to, and they're very very transparent about that because obviously for the same reasons you're, you're just described. I mean, I think, I think from, from an education perspective, um, and I mentioned this to Navdeep and she hated the idea because she, her, her argument is this was naive. But I, I think overnight I would, um, if I was Prime Minister of, of the UK, is I would force Oxford and Cambridge to impose a moratorium on privately educated students entering the new college. And, I, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and obviously I lecture at Cambridge and you can call me a hypocrite, but I think that, that something has to be done in a more radical way to ensure state school children get access to the top universities. And, and you know, Navdeep's argument against that stupid idea possibly was that will they just find another university to appropriate so Durham would become the new Cambridge or the, you know, those ways around it. But I think that I think that, that there has to be some radical steps being moved. To, I think the thing that I'd become obsessed with if I was leader of a country would be breaking the, the class ceiling, not the glass ceiling, but the class ceiling, because this is something that I, has, I have felt has has held me back, but it's certainly something that I've had to circumvent, right? I agree with that. I mean, obviously, there's you can apply that to class system, caste system, 
uh, wealth system in America and race. Every country has its uh, comp- relevant comparison. But going forward, I mean, as we and with you with young children growing up in the 21st century, dealing with the huge risks that we face with climate change as we approach, are likely to approach a three degree increase, leaving aside the, the risks of, of what's going to happen with an uncontrolled, unregulated AI arms race. From an educational standpoint, if you read, um, just taking uh, Yuval Noah Harari's, um, one of the points that he makes in his book, Rules of 21 Rules of the 21st Century, kids will need to be learning the four C's, uh, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, creativity. Your point about universities and changing it is, is great and would be a welcome um, radical shake-up of the education system. But everyone, regardless of class, regardless of race, regardless of creed, are going to be facing the same unified challenge and it appears to me that there aren't any education authorities or systems around the world embracing this need and this the need for radical change how are you on an individual basis helping your children embrace these these skills such as critical thinking better communication skills being more collaborative embracing their creativity i think interestingly a a long rambling question but uh no, no, it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I I think that I I've kind of decided that I'm going to return to some environmental and journalism investigations next year. I've already spoken to the Guardian about it, and I think and I think that this is something that I really want to do for for my children's sake because I want I want them to you know they're old, they're old enough now to read read you know lots of my stories and investigations. But I think to to be something that present and maybe even consider taking them on the assignments. I mean, I've taken my son on film shoots before. Uh, to try and connect them in a, in a different way beyond school to what's happening in the world, you know. And I, I think we become institutionalised as people. I think that journalists become institutionalised. You know, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not saying that, that I'm special, but I, I don't think there are many journalists that could go and create a content company, right? And, and I, I just, I think that they become institutionalised. You're either one thing or the other. And I think that what my children will become is probably a number of things over the course of their careers. They might even have two or three careers, you know, and I don't think that, you know, the, the arguments made and it's a strong argument that university is preparing the next generation for nothing because the jobs that they're going to be doing in 10, 15, 20 years time won't even exist, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But I think that creativity will be the heart of any, any success in the future. Um, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence. And so I want my kids to be a number of things like those, like the, the, the talk I gave at Google, you know, a room full of diverse, multilingual individuals from different backgrounds. I think they've got quite a good, I, I don't know, I, I can't speak for Google Human Resources Department, but I think that the, the people that I met there, I was very impressed with their backgrounds. They're diverse. And I think they, they were looking for, they weren't looking for MBA students. They were looking for multicultural candidates that, that had, and my kids are classic third nation. One was born in Delhi. My son was born in Delhi. My daughter was born in Cape Town. So I think that they already have these tools, you know, to, to adapt to new cultures, to to, to, to be able to overcome adversity. These are skills that schools can't give them. And I want them to have a social conscience. And I, and I think that's something that they, by osmosis, they pick up every day because we constantly, like, you know, talk about politics. We constantly talk about social issues, much like yourself, constantly, constantly navigating and assessing the world around us. Okay. I mean, certainly from having um, met you in Navdeep and... Um, and your charming children a couple of years ago. You know, I think they're going to be well placed for dealing with the, the uncertainty of the upcoming century. Yeah, but I think uh, the challenge. Sorry, just one thing. One yeah. thing I want to say is that the challenge that I face is making them angry, and and that's the one thing that I worry about. 
it's like so if you know like uh, you know, I was giving a talk last year, giving a lecture, and one of the students started crying during the lecture because of one of the stories I was describing. And then, you know, during the Q&A, one, one of the students put her hands up and says, why are you so angry? And, you know, maybe listening to this podcast and understanding the background, the stories or where I come from, there may be some sort of, I hate to use the word empathy, but an understanding mm-hmm. of maybe why I'm, I do sound so pissed off. But what about my kids? who are privately educated, who, who live in relative luxury and have a nice life, you know, where, where's their anger going to come from? Where's the hunger going to come from? And that's the challenge that I face as a, as a father or as a parent and that faces as a mother is how can we make them angry enough to, because they have the, they have the principles, right? Where's that anger going to come from? You risk, I suppose you risk leading them to a world of complacency and a feeling of uh, privilege and you don't, that's the last thing you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Well, maybe that's a, a follow-up. Maybe a couple of years down the line, let's just see how they're how they're growing up. I want to finish off with some quick-fire questions, uh, or okay. relatively quick-fire questions. Uh, what principles do you stand by, Dan? Uh, pay for newspaper and magazine subscriptions. That's a good one. Free journalism is not good. Uh, yeah. Watch foreign films with subtitles. What's uh, your favourite? Uh, well, actually, I just watched Roma. I haven't seen it yet, but I will be watching it in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, my favourite film of, of all time is a little bit cliched, but I, I I'll take it on the chin. It's Cinema Paradiso. I, I love I love the I love the I love the prodigal son narrative. And I've been speaking recently, and I said that my little fantasy was actually not to have grown up in Paisley, but a little Scotch village, you know, and somewhere in the Western Isles where I would return home to and have a lock in at a local pub, and everyone would know me, you know, and hey, are you doing, Danny, and stuff. But you know, it never really happens like that. But Cinema Paradiso is probably chimes with that. Um, Laughter is the best medicine. It may not sound it listening to this podcast or interview, but I I do you know laugh and um yeah and um principles put your family first especially not wanting to um uh incite anger amongst uh, a certain side of glasgow but obviously you must have had a little chuckle at some point when a, a certain rival team were demoted <laughs> yeah well actually one of, one of my one of my one of my best one of my one of my best friends the a brilliant journalist was was responsible for partly responsible for investigating them um so i was quite proud of him for that what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to have been the right decision in the end? I think uh, resigning as the Africa correspondent for the Sunday Times is difficult because um, it's a big job, and, and you know, not many people leave jobs like that. They'll they'll stay until they're dead drunk or divorced, um, and I I didn't want to do any of those things, so that was that was a tough decision. It was the right decision. Um, in true rock star fashion, you ducked out at the top. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, I think I was probably quite smart, and um, yeah, that's a, that was a big, big decision for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, where do you go to discover new ideas? Okay, so so you know, I run as as I said earlier. You know, not, I don't run like you, but I'm a, I'm a decent runner, and I think that I do think a lot. I think very clearly, and I run. I have my best ideas. In fact, often, often when I run, I'll I'll I'll, I'll come back and I'll I'll make notes. Uh, on my phone of ideas that I've had. I've never really understood how that worked. But do you listen? Somehow, do, you, do you listen to anything when you run, or you just got free minded, taking in the surroundings and the sounds? I kind of went through a period of listening to podcasts, but I just, I couldn't really concentrate on anything else. You know, my noise was my head was too full of noise, and so I just I listened to Spotify. Which I mean, I have music everywhere. Music's such a big part of my life. I listen to music constantly. When I lived in Cape Town, I, I did I did kind of surf a bit and was in the ocean quite a lot, and I found that to be like a a bomb. 
you know, for my, my troubled mind at the time. For discovering new ideas for me is travel. You live in Barcelona, right? I mean, I, I literally, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the city and I, I sit and have a the, the pleasure that I get from sitting in, a, in a, a little tapas bar with a little coffee and just looking at people walking around. Just, I don't know why it's the most simple pleasure, but I just, I love being in the city, the heart, the cultural heart of the city. The cities get quite a revolutionary heart. It's quite anti-establishment and, I, and that kind of appeals to me. It appeals to my Scottish kind of, you know, power to the people, I guess, in some respects. So I, I, I get a lot of pleasure and I get, and increasingly I'm finding that, I'm finding Barcelona to be quite inspiring creatively. Do you journal? Do you keep a journal? <laughs> I mean, you're a journalist, obviously, you write a lot. <laughs> I think it's, you know, the beauty of being a journalist is you have this incredible back catalogue of writing. So thousands of articles, you know, um, but I, I started recently a process of documenting my experiences and little anecdotes and finding stories. And, you know, I think before the Alzheimer's kicks in. And so I think uh, I'm finding it quite cathartic. For example, I only took a decision, you know, certainly in the last year or so to talk about, um, about going into therapy and trying to kind of reconcile some of the things that I've experienced. And I think that's, that's probably because of other people. It's become quite fashionable, hasn't it? To, uh, it's, it's okay to not be okay, as they say. I mean, even yeah. one of my, 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 my beloved Celtic, you know, um, a footballer called Lee Griffiths has suddenly came out with mental health issues, but although his are slightly complex, they seem to be around gambling and, and having, I think, three or four children with different women that's another story but anyway but he's he's having a tough time and, and you, when you realize when, when players like that are coming out and saying that they're struggling emotionally and, and one of the, the most touching things i saw was the celtic fans had put out an enormous banner saying lee it's okay not to be okay and so you realize when it when it comes over to the mainstream that we're all having uh emotional issues in one way or another you know then it's it's probably a really positive thing in fact i found out in the course of the last year that a couple of dear friends of mine that I, I thought were completely impregnable had, had been through quite intense therapy. And, and um, so I think it's quite a, quite a good thing. I think in, I think 20 years ago, it would have been frowned upon. 10 years ago. I don't think you would have ever had a banner on the, on the stands of Parkhead 25 years ago with that, with that on it. I know, but look, I mean, I'm so proud of Celtic so, fans. I mean, you know, Celtic, uh, you know, we, we played against uh, Tel Aviv, um, Sorry, that's, I think that's me. Um, the Celtic fans um, campaigned for Palestine, you yeah, know, when, when they were, and they raised half a million pounds, you know, when when they were playing in Israel. So, I, you know, they've got a good sense of principle. Let's not talk about the IRA songs, though. That's a different thing altogether. Um, last couple of questions: How do you keep up? Techno- how do you keep up with technology? And what could you live without? So, so my my personal email address is dan.dougalatmike.com because I was an early believer. So I, 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 you know, I don't have Dan one, two, three, four, McDougal at Mac, etc. I'm so I, I embraced technology early on. And but actually, one of the things that you've consistently done is given me quite good tips on technology. I, I, I am. I'm probably not that up on it as I should be, but technology for me is physical technology. So having my for iPad for my notes and my my MacBook and my constantly attached to you know emails and phones. So I'm I'm connected in that sense. Um, so I'm not a luddite. Put it that what way. What about Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter? So I'm off Facebook now. And, um, on principle, I like it like a lot of people I know, and I think that's I think that's mainly a. It's mainly a response to Mark Zuckerberg, I think. But I think that I think that Zuckerberg, like, you know, character like him turning up and, and and being thankful that they're not being investigated for monopolies; they're actually being investigated for for breaching people's privacy. You know, I mean, I, I think that he's a uh, he's he's a reason not to be on Facebook. 
but you are on Instagram. Yeah, I'm a, hypoc- I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, but but Instagram for me is well, quite. It's a legacy. It's a legacy of Kevin Systrom. So it's, I think it's we can show faith and and his vision. So I think that's that's supremacy. I think Instagram Instagram for me is more the photography. I, I'm obsessed with photography. I work with brilliant photographers. I've been so lucky over the years and I love seeing pe- people's lives through photographs. I don't even, I don't, I've never really had a, I have journalist friends that, that go through the organisation so they get up their numbers up. But I'm just interested in it as, a, as, a, as an amateur. So kind of voyeur almost. And what are you on Instagram if people want to follow you? I don't even think I can tell you. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I'll, put it, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> Okay, finally, um, well, there's two final questions. Um, what would your advice be to a kid in Glasgow with seemingly impossible goals or ambitions? I, I think that, um, you know, when I went back to give the talk to my to my school, I'd, I'd actually been encouraged by, by my wife, Navdeep, who said that, you know, why, why are you lecturing at Cambridge and you're not even bothering to go home and talk to to the kids that go to your school or grew up in the same housing estate as you and I and it, and it kind of was quite sobering for me it made me realise that I, I wasn't avoiding it or I'd, I'd maybe perhaps I don't know I just wasn't considering it and that's a problem and it's something that I probably need to address I think I would say that class isn't a barrier it can be used as an advantage I would say be cocky and courageous but base your self-belief on it's almost like I, I like the underdog narrative, you know, if you can base that self-belief that you have on a determination to prove people wrong, I think that's a good start. I think cry at losses, but then recover quickly. Um, even as a young journalist, I had failures and, you know, and when I remember going to work for the Daily Mail in London, being headhunted, you know, as this kind of young star journalist. And then uh, the news editor at Daily Mail at the time was a bully. And I, I confronted him after he kicked a chair from under a freelance journalist. You can believe he actually did that in the newsroom and nobody spoke except me. I stood up and said, what do you think you're doing? And then we were at war with each other and then I, I tried to punch him at a press awards. Um, and, and you know, there goes my career at the Daily Mail. But, and, and, but then, you know, ironically, I returned to the Mail on Sunday as one of the star foreign correspondents. So I, I think that, that the resilience is important. I think, you know, have this have this resilience. And, you know, one of the other things that I thought was that be conceited as a Scot, right? Be conceited enough to believe that you're playing for your country, you know, that you're representing your community and your family and your country. And that's that, that should inspire you to do something that they'll all be proud of. And then I think the most important thing for me is you hold dear the romance of travel um, and, and you know, have adventure beyond your own imagination and that of your peers. Because in my experience, to find the story, you've got to go to the ends of the earth. And as I often say, if the journey hasn't broken you, then you haven't arrived. Don't be a tourist ever. And live in the shadow of Tintin. Well, here's you, here's, here's you never went. Here's you never went. Here's you never went anywhere. But yeah, but yeah. <laughs> okay, so the final question: um, We want to give away um, your uh, a book or books to three listeners with the best comments. Uh, what should those books be? So, I, the, the, the books I would choose would be um, the Road to Oxiana by Robert Byron, which was first published in 1937 and remains, in my opinion, to be the greatest travel book ever written. In fact, it's generally regarded as the first real travelogue, you know, apart from Herodotus, um, it, but it's like that first in the modern publishing era, that, that real, um, this, this is incredible, incredible journey. I'm embarrassed um, to say I haven't read it, but I will put it on my list of to do uh, 2019. 
and the sheltering sky by Paul Bowles, which um, which I've I've held dear for many many years, um, and uh, and it's just the most extraordinary book. And that was published in 1949. And I, and I think that these these um, the, the choice of both of these books is very relevant because I think that that romantic aspect of how I see travel, and I think maybe in some respects I was I was born in the wrong era, you know. Um, and I love I love the worlds that both authors travel through, and the Bowles in particular is the most underrated author. And I, I think this quote from The Sheltering Sky is important to me is, that, you know, he Bowles wrote that whereas the tourist generally hurries back home at the end of a few weeks or months, the traveller belonging no more to one place than to the next moves slowly over periods of years from one part of the earth to another. Indeed, he would have found it difficult to tell among the many places he had lived precisely where it was he'd felt most at home. And I can maybe relate to that. Although I feel at home in Barcelona, I don't really know where home is anymore. It's Scotland, isn't it? It is Scotland. All right. I'll never um, lose that. Well, I think I live in New York and uh, New York is, is my home, but uh, in my physical home, but I suppose spiritual home is Scotland. And yes. it will be. Well, thank exactly. you, Dan. I really appreciate it. I'd just like to finish by uh, saying I've known you for a few years, but thank you for your honesty, your vulnerability in answering questions um, and exposing how you really feel about the challenges you faced personally and professionally in your life. I think your your sense of justice and desire for seeking righteousness um, marks you out against many journalists that maybe don't go as far as you've gone in seeking the truth. And hopefully with the work you've done, inspiring other people, both in your school and in Cambridge and other people that you meet, we'll see a generation of other journalists that will come on and take the mantle that you've uh, you've left. But um, thank you. And I look forward to the next time we can maybe follow up on this and get some more details because there's a lot of things we could have talked about for hours, but I know the time there. Uh, maybe next time we do this face-to-face in Barcelona. Let's see how it okay. goes. Okay. All right, mate. All right. Good to talk cool. to you, Mark. All right. Thanks. Like- I really appreciate the time, right. Dan. Right. Cheers. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. For now, stay curious, be creative and be open to serendipity. See you next time.